Welcome to DNA Unlocked, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. In DNA Unlocked, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the ever-evolving perception of human biology and disease processes, thanks to a growing mountain of genetics and omics data. Through discussions with colleagues and other leading research experts, Deshays unpacks how drug developers decode human genetics to solve some of the most challenging diseases. Researchers in drug development face a series of challenges even before candidate drugs are tested. Namely, finding promising targets and figuring out what they do in the context of complex diseases. There are numerous gaps in our understanding of human biology, and to make matters worse, due to the complexity and unpredictability of biology, scientists often come to the lab bench with preconceived notions that are often incomplete or even worse, incorrect. Thankfully, human genetics enables researchers to unravel the mysteries of biological systems in an unbiased manner. In this episode, I talk to Saptarsi Haldar, a physician scientist and vice president of research at Amgen, who leads cardiometabolic drug discovery. Prior to joining Amgen, His academic research group studied the gene regulatory mechanisms governing tissue plasticity in physiology and disease. We will explore how human genetics and other omics data helps us understand the basic biology behind promising drug targets and how that informs therapeutic development. Sap, it's really a pleasure to be here with you today to touch on this subject. I'd like to launch into a very high-level question. What do you view as being some of the key strengths, as well as some of the key limitations of using human genetics and drug discovery? It's a real pleasure to be here to discuss how we use genetics in drug development. Scientists are humans, and we have preconceived notions about nature. And we often take observations and experiences from the past, from ourselves or from others, and start to make inferences about nature and biology, in this case, human disease and drug development, how it all works. That is the scientific method. It is these inferences that lead to hypotheses uh, that we then test and we either accept or refute. Anytime you have preconceived notions, it introduces biases. One of the powerful aspects of large-scale genetics and human genetics is that it is a largely unbiased methodology where uh, you can basically say what genes are associated with a particular trait or a particular disease without any preconceived notion of what that gene might be or where it may be located on the genome. And then uh, you get some hits. The beauty of this is that it unhitches one from any preconceived notion. One of the big issues with this is that if you were to get a hit from a genetic analysis, it doesn't necessarily give a one-to-one correspondence pinpointing you to where to target a protein for a drug. More commonly, a genetic signal from these types of unbiased analyses tells you where to shine your flashlight or where to focus your magnifying glass. Once you get to that general location, you still have to sniff around and dig and do some biology to figure out how things work. 
often the genetic signal that you got will point to you some area of biology, but it may not necessarily be the exact drug target. If this were a sports analogy, and we're going to use American football, genetics will often get you to the 20-yard line of your own half of the field. But to get to the end zone, one has to do a lot of biology and integrate all this information. So it is an important part of our knowledge base, but it is not sufficient in many cases to make a drug. I like to think of it in terms of simple analogy where you have a gearhead mechanic working on Mustangs in the 1960s. You have a time machine and, and you pop in front of them a Tesla. Uh, that mechanic could use their preconceived notions derived from working on a Mustang and probably make quite a bit of progress in understanding how the Tesla works um, without having to start from ground zero. But imagine you beam in a a Martian from outer space who's never been on Earth before, and you confront them with the Tesla, they wouldn't have the same preconceived notions. The best approach would be to give them a screwdriver and a drill and a hammer and a saw and to systematically remove parts and then see what, what aspect of the car didn't work any longer. And in that way, you could arrive at an understanding of what parts contribute to what function of the car. And that's sort of like what genetics does for you. It allows you to systematically remove parts from the organism and then determine what happens to the organism as a consequence of that. Now, implicit in what I just described, however, is that many of the genetic variants that exist in a human reduce the function of a particular gene. And when they reduce the function or they completely eliminate the gene, that leads to an enhanced risk of disease. You have a certain variant and you're more prone to having a heart attack, for example. We want to decrease the risk of having a heart attack. If you have a variant that increases a risk, how do you use that information to think about developing a drug? I love the uh, car analogies. If you're looking at all the parts of a car, there's a thousand ways to mess up how a car works. And that's kind of how genetics works. If you clip the wire or you, you mess up with some gear, you misalign it, you're more likely to mess up how the car works and not make it better because everything has a function for how the machine operates. If you mess with a gene or mutate it or delete it, often you're more likely to mess up its normal function. And that's how a lot of genetics will work. So we get a variant or a mutation in a gene, more than likely it's reducing normal function of that gene. If a gene isn't working right, maybe you can replace it in one in a million patients and you can make them better. But for the more common heterogeneous forms of the disease, just because you know how something works when you perturb it, it doesn't necessarily mean that augmenting it, even if you could, is going to make the disease better. As you were talking, I was trying to think of a counterexample, which is a gene that's more like a rheostat that you can dial up and down. And a gas tank determines how far you can drive the car before it stops because it runs out of gas. If you had a, a genetic variant with a smaller gas tank, your car would have a shorter range. On the other hand, if you had a variant with a bigger gas tank, your car would have a longer range. So that's an example where the variant 
is like a rheostat that controls the range. There's a lot of variants in human genetics like that, where you can dial a lot of genes with different variants, and that has a positive or negative effect on susceptibility to disease. A lot of what we do in human genetics when we're identifying targets The variant is telling us about the lifetime risk of getting a disease. So you may have a particular variant, and it means that your risk of having Parkinson's disease is elevated. But just in my own life, I've known some people who are unfortunate enough to get Parkinson's disease. And the rate of progression of the disease in those people actually varied pretty substantially, where in some cases it progressed very slowly, in other cases it progressed very rapidly. Much of the genetics we have is like sort of a snapshot, which tells us this is the probability you get this disease. What we need is more like a movie, which actually shows how the disease, if it comes on, unwinds over time, how it progresses. Is there a solution to that problem? This is a very big problem in how we currently use human genetics. It's the initiation of disease versus the progression of disease problem. It's very important to understand what leads to the initiation of a disease, because I think that gives us a lot of biological insight. But as drug developers, it creates a major problem because we are creating drugs that we want to prevent and also halt the progression of disease. But when you're talking about things that initiate disease, you really don't know when that's going to occur. And it forces you to start treating people who are completely asymptomatic. If we take the, the neurodegenerative disease example, if you have a drug that interdicts a pathway that leads to the onset of Parkinson's, Are you going to give that drug to a 30-year-old who may have a risk of developing Parkinson's three decades before uh, they have it? Is that going to cause harm? The way we're designed now is to take people that have some early form uh, of the disease and either halt the progression or reverse it. So we need to find targets that act as rheostats that can modify the progression. And our current genetics are largely looking at snapshots So the way we've done a lot of genetics over the last decade is taking a very large population of people who donate their samples for genetic information, and we take a snapshot of hundreds of thousands of different people who have different traits or different stages of of a disease. Another thing we need to do to unravel this progression problem is maybe we should be taking time-lapse movies of of the population. Maybe it's hard to take a time-lapse movie in hundreds of thousands of, of people. But maybe if we could focus and take time-lapse movies in people that we identify to have early forms of a disease, like neurodegeneration, Parkinson's, uh, or Alzheimer's, and study those individuals through their genetics, which doesn't change throughout that movie, but there's other features that do change, proteins in the blood, metabolites in the blood, and start to integrate this type of information and, and try to map what correlates with progression and see what we can manipulate. Another challenge I was thinking about where you have a complex disease like let's say, heart failure, which I know is something that you think a lot about. And the geneticists run the genome-wide association study, which is a study that correlates variants in their genome with 
whether or not they have experienced heart failure. In a population of people who have or don't have heart failure, you look to see if there's enrichment of particular variants. If a variant is enriched in the population that doesn't have heart failure, then it's protective. And if enriched in the population that has heart failure, it increases risk. But then if you dig a little bit more deeply, what you find is that there's not one gene or two genes or variants. There may be a hundred each of which contribute 1% or even less to the risk of having heart failure. Because if you develop a drug that only addresses 1% of the risk, it's going to be hard to deliver massive value with that type of drug. What you want is a drug that would affect 30 or 40 or 50% of the risk. So how do you deal with that? That is a complicated issue. Cardiovascular diseases, like any chronic heterogeneous disease, is often very multifactorial, a combination of genetics and environment. Genetic variants that are common in the population typically cause small effect sizes because if they cause huge perturbations in the system, they wouldn't be common. They would be rare. And on the flip side, sometimes nature has stochastic accidents, which are rare mutations that can occur. And those typically can be quite deleterious and have big effect sizes on a disease. And this is the paradigm that we struggle with. Often those small signals are giving you clues about a target or a pathway. And even though the effect sizes are low, when you have a small genetic perturbation from birth, you should take that signal and it gives you a impetus to then dig in and explore the biology and pharmacology more and ask, well, what happens if I manipulate that gene acutely in a preclinical model, for example, or a cell where you can now achieve 100% inhibition or 50% activation? We can have bigger swings on the function of that gene using pharmacological approaches or genetic approaches to start to get at well, what kind of rheostatic function can be elicited. The second thing is that sometimes you get signals around families of genes that cluster on a type of biology or a type of pathway. If you were to do a genome-wide association study for things that lead to a failing heart that doesn't contract well, you would come up with a lot of genes that affect cholesterol. For example, an LDL cholesterol in the blood, and a lot of those would be low effect size genes, but then one could construct some type of relationship that seems like if you have too much LDL cholesterol, somehow that leads to heart failure down the road. And if you have less LDL cholesterol, that leads to less heart failure. And then one could start to construct a hypothesis around LDL cholesterol as a modifiable risk factor for downstream disease. If you do genome-wide association studies for LDL cholesterol, you may get a whole number of genes, but a lot of those aren't going to be the exact drug target that you go after. And in fact, the most widely used drugs for LDL lowering, uh, the statin class of drugs, the signals for their target, HMG-CoA reductase, are not the most prominent signals one would get in these types of genetic analyses. But yet, the genetics does still point you to manipulating LDL cholesterol in multiple ways to benefit the downstream cardiovascular risk. We should be thinking about using genetics in a more versatile manner, not just pinpointing us to a single drug target. From looking at what's being worked on, it feels to me almost as if our fields of drug discovery are target limited. If you look in cardiometabolic disorders, your chosen field, 
there's 22,000, give or take, protein coding genes in the human genome. My guess is there are at most maybe a few dozen out of the 22,000 that are actually being pursued as targets of potential future drugs. And I'm curious, why is the number so small? Is that because there really is a limited number of volume knobs in the cardiovascular system that you can tweak to dial up or down in a beneficial way to treat human disease? Or is it a reflection just of our limited ability to identify good targets? And maybe there's a lot more good targets out there. We just don't know about them. I would say you're absolutely correct in that good targets are hard to find. We do these large-scale genetic analyses, and the vast majority are signals that are small clues with small effect sizes on the disease. We have to dig into some of these pathways and start to understand the biology. And the reality is for chronic diseases like cardiovascular diseases, there's only certain knobs that you can turn. There's a lot of targets that you can manipulate them and make the heart better, but they're going to make the rest of the body worse if you mess with them. Because a lot of these targets are in multiple organs and tissues and cell types where they play important homeostatic roles in maintaining day-to-day function of those organs. We should continue to be doing the genetics and human biology and trying to expand the target space. But at the same time, we should be doing the nitty-gritty biology to really understand these targets. What will expand the target space for us more is tissue-restricted drug delivery. There are actually targets that may be good targets if only we could narrow the therapeutic manipulation to a specific tissue or a specific cell type. I think those types of technologies are going to be a paradigm shift that is going to open up a whole new space of targets. You keep banging on this point about the biology. We need to do the biology. I did my PhD in not human genetics, but yeast genetics. And So I'm familiar with many examples where genetics was used to unravel a complex cellular pathway in yeast, including things like secretion, that was the lab that I worked in, cell cycle control, splicing, DNA replication, all sorts of fundamental processes where genetics contributed to the discovery of genes that play an important role in the process. And in many cases, uncovered unexpected things that you would never have thought might be involved in that process. And it was completely unclear how they might function until you did the biology. And then you realized that, aha, this is how this works. Are there specific examples in human genetics where doing the biology was absolutely key to really understanding how the thing is working and how that relates to disease? So within the cardiovascular space, I think there's one very germane example that highlights the utility of using genetics, followed by digging into the biology, and those go hand in hand. And this is around the really exciting human genetics uh, pertaining to a target called PCSK9. To make a long story short, investigators in clinical medicine and human genetics have always kind of known that there are people with extremes of 
LDL cholesterol or low density lipoprotein uh, cholesterol, because some of them manifest with uh, syndromes of excess cholesterol, and that's the opposite. And these are called familial hypocholesterol syndromes. And there's one such family of patients that were identified in France almost 20 years ago that were found to have mutations in a gene called PCSK9 and had extremely high LDL cholesterol and its manifestations. A few years later, other groups found just the opposite. There are people with very low LDL cholesterol, several standard deviations below the population average that were fine and walking around, and they actually had what turned out to be loss of function or null mutations, complete inactivation of the same gene, PCSK9, and they were pretty healthy and they had low LDL cholesterol. The problem is that we have this exciting genetics. Nobody knew what PCSK9 really did. PCSK9 is an excellent example. The sequence of the gene indicated that it is a protein cutting enzyme, and one naturally thinks that must be how it works. It chops proteins up. But of course, the biology revealed something quite unexpected and completely unpredictable from the genetics, which is that the PCSK9 protein binds to the LDL receptor. Normally, the LDL receptor functions kind of like a conveyor belt. It picks up cholesterol particles in the blood, ferries them into the cell, drops them off on another conveyor belt that leads to the cellular garbage disposal, and meanwhile the LDL receptor heads back out to the cell surface to pick up yet more cholesterol. However, when PCSK9 binds to it, the LDL receptor behaves differently. Instead of constantly cycling from the outside of the cell to the inside and back again, it instead goes straight to the garbage disposal along with the LDL particle that it has picked up. So it goes inside and instead of coming back out, it goes straight to the incinerator, if you will, and gets destroyed. Now, the problem with that is, is now there's less LDL receptor in the cell because it's not being recycled. In the case of a null mutation in PCSK9, without having that protein present, the LDL receptor constantly is recycling into the cell and back out again, and that removes a lot of cholesterol from the blood, causing the cholesterol levels to really drop precipitously. There are many similar examples from fundamental genetic studies where a protein sequence points to a particular function, like in the case of PCSK9, where we thought its function was to chop up proteins. But then when you unravel the biology, it turns out that the protein's true function is quite different and in many cases very surprising. Can I give a quick second example that's on a higher order uh, type of biologic thinking, and it surrounds obesity. There's been a lot of interest in the complex human genetics that govern how much you weigh and where you put your fat. I think a lot of people might have predicted that a lot of the genetics would have pointed to things in the fat cell or the pancreas that secretes insulin and in organs throughout the viscera and the body. But it turns out that the genetics is pointing a lot to the brain. A lot of the focus on the 
pathophysiology and neurobiology of obesity is now getting back into neuroscience. And we're seeing a lot of drugs hit the market for obesity and its metabolic consequences that actually have significant activity in the brain. And we have a lot to understand, but this is the other type of thing that genetics can point you to is broad areas of physiology that you didn't really know where to focus. I'd like to turn to a final question and it concerns an issue that I know we confront on an almost daily basis. Let's say you do the genetics and you find a target and the directionality is correct. Removing the target is beneficial and the effect size is very large. If you inhibit this gene, you reduce the risk of disease by 90%. Everything is lining up, but then you look at the protein and it's completely unclear how you could get a drug to stick to it. Maybe it's a Teflon ball. You can't get a drug to stick to it. And even if you could, it's not like there's a pocket in that little Teflon ball that's really critical that you could shove a drug into it that's going to block its function. And we call these things undruggable. We can't influence their function with drugs. As many as 85% of the proteins encoded in the human genome are undruggable. So it stands to reason if you do genetics and genetics points you to a target, the likelihood is 85% of those targets will be undruggable. How do you deal with that? The beauty of genetics is that it can point you in new directions that you didn't expect. But if you were only going after inferential or hypothesis-driven approaches, which you're thinking at the end of the game, I got to make a molecule to drug this target, you would paint yourself into a narrow corner of the available target space of the druggable genome. It's hard enough to find targets that check all the boxes with human genetics as far as effect sizes, biologic plausibility, safety, directionality. So that limits you. And then to come after at all that and say, oh my God, I don't know how to make a molecule to interdict this target that I have so much conviction around. There's some innovative ways to approach the undruggable genome that I think could really open the doors uh, for the future. There's a belief that once you've identified a target uh, to make a potent and specific drug, one still has to design a molecule that directly binds that target or in a very direct manner and specific manner, manipulates that target, whether it's reduces its function or abundance or increases its function or abundance. I would say that there are two emerging approaches that may open the doors uh, to this, quote, undruggable genome. The first are nucleic acid-based therapeutics, which allow you to either dial up if you want to overexpress or dial down if you want to silence a gene solely based on the genetic code and its nucleic acid sequence. And these are antisense DNA oligonucleotides or small interfering RNAs. And then there's the concept of, can we design molecules that can bind a protein of interest, not necessarily manipulate its function or enzymatic activity, but simply degrade it or inhibit its function by bringing it into proximity with other proteins that may interfere with its location or function. I agree, Sap, and I would put those near the top of my list as well. There's so many complexities to using human data to discover targets and what the future potential is and where things are going to go from here. 
I look forward to seeing what comes out of your laboratories over in the cardiometabolic disease therapeutic area as you strive to work with human genetics to potentially discover targets for treating many of these cardiovascular diseases that today remain some of our biggest societal challenges. Then using that knowledge to start building medicines that could make a real difference for patients in the future. So thank you, Sap, for joining us today and having this really stimulating conversation. Thanks, Ray. This was a lot of fun, and thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to DNA Unlocked, and thanks again to Septarsi Haldar, Vice President of Cardiometabolic Research at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the DNA Unlocked Q&A webinar discussion on September 1st. Register for this event at the link provided in the episode notes. While genomics provides insights into a person's DNA, these data are only a portion of the whole story. In the next episode of DNA Unlocked, we will go beyond genomics with Larry Gold, founder of Soma Logic, and discuss how different types of omics data combine to give researchers a clearer picture of disease risk and progression. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project. Thank you.